All this talk of ordination reminds me when we ordain elders that it was in the late 1990s I was ordained as an elder and a pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America. And this was a new thing for me because I was not raised Presbyterian. In fact, I was raised Catholic and then came to know Christ in an Assembly of God charismatic church environment. And so uh, coming with me into the Presbyterian Church in America was a a set of beliefs about the extra uh, movement of the spirit uh, and the biblical movement of the spirit. But there's this ongoing tension that exists in Protestant orthodoxy, which is do the gifts of the spirit continue to move and operate as they did in the New Testament, or did they somehow or another cease uh, uh, subsequent to us canonizing and gathering together what the scriptures are? And, And my belief, and actually the belief of our network, is that the, the gifts of the Spirit continue under biblical direction in this day. Well, back in the late 90s, being a charismatic Calvinist wasn't like cool and chic like it is nowadays. And uh, so going into the Presbyterian Church in America and telling them that I believe people actually prayed in tongues today made them just sort of kind of go, yeah. And then... There were a couple of guys in that particular presbytery, and they ordain you in the presbytery by bringing you in front of them, and it's, and it's, like, a, you know, it's like a tribunal. It's all of the pastors and elders in a particular region, and they can ask you anything. And there was one particular guy that had in his craw that I, hold, that I held this belief. And so he stood up, and he was rather gruff. And he put me on the spot and said, Tell me the biblical reason that you think this is still a reality. And so I semi-graciously cited the scriptures and talked about my view. And then in response to that, still standing in front of everybody, he said, I want to get you a book. And this book you got to get, it will blow that argument out of the water. And at this, you know, you got to understand, I'm kind of a smart aleck. And so my response kicked in. I went, oh, sure, I'll go run right out and get that book. You know, I mean, that was really what I, I, and that's kind of sort of what I meant. I was like, like gosh, you're really grumpy and mean. And uh, so I very sarcastically said, yeah, I'll run right out and get that book. Well, you know, then I realized I was in front of all these people, and they probably thought I was this really immature guy, which I was. And then another pastor stood up, and he started coming to my defense. And in no small part, because of his willingness to speak up, they were like, okay. We trust this guy. We'll let him in. Well, afterwards, this pastor who defended me came up to me and he said, you know, I I didn't know how how I felt about you. But then when I heard you willing to listen to this brother's argument, and then you were actually willing to run to the store. (laughs) I didn't have the heart to tell this guy that I'm really not a very nice guy and that he made a bad call. I'll say this is an example of someone who doesn't speak fluent sarcasm. Uh, My family grew up in the United States, but like many families, English wasn't our native tongue. Sarcasm was. Uh, You may wonder what sarcasm is, so maybe this isn't a gift for you. I'll I'll give you one example from the Internet. This is one of my favorite memes. It's a Willy Wonka uh, encouraging you not to write smart aleck emails. So... You wrote a sarcastic email. You must be really smart. You know, and so this is the kind of thing 
that dotted the landscape of my childhood and adult life, really, unfortunately. Um, I'll say this. Sarcasm is a rhetorical device. It's a literary device. It is used to point out error, weakness, absurdity. Usually it's trying to be funny at the same time, which, of course, happens for me. It also occurs when a speaker intends to uh, attack a third party using language to ridicule or show their, show their displeasure. Now, with this type of description of sarcasm, many Christians have determined that sarcasm is always wrong. I will tell you that inside the marriage covenant, sarcasm is not helpful in terms of resolving conflict. <laughs> 25 years, I can assure you, I have been, I'm a master now at knowing such a thing. I've not, not, not been very good. Uh, uh, however, if you read the scriptures and you believe they're the word of God, you're going to have to deal with, in particular, this section of Scripture where Paul resorts to, some have called it irony, but there's no nice way of putting it. Paul's being sarcastic. He is dealing with some folks that are causing him to reach deep into his rhetorical well to help alert them to a problem. Now, if you study Scripture well, you'll discover that Paul only uses this literary device when he's dealing with the hardest of hearts and the most heretical of opponents. And it's, it's important to remember that. This is consistent with Jesus' life. It's consistent with the teaching of King Solomon and the apostle James, Jesus' brother. They both said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think Jesus is a great example. There were times where he turned the tables over and cracked the whip to drive the money changers out of the temple. There were times where he referred to his opponents as a brood of vipers. That is translated into our language, a bunch of snakes. And then there was times where prostitutes and tax collectors, and he was called a friend of sinners. He embraced them. So what we see is a pattern where when somebody's like belligerently ugly and opposing grace, opposing the gospel, opposing God, that there is, at least in this particular case, a reason to be strong, strong enough in your language that you could be seen as sarcastic. Now, sarcasm is never condemned as sinful, but then again, neither is gun use. But both have to be done with great care or people get hurt. And both require wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon said there's a time for war and a time for peace. The wisdom is knowing what time it is. I'll read from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Paul is dealing with some foolish Corinthian church leaders and the equally hard-hearted false teachers leading them astray. So today we're going to look at what Paul is actually trying to say and why it was so important for him to resort to this tactic. 
Sarcastic point number one from Paul. Meek, po- meek people may look foolish, but proud people act foolishly. Meek people may look foolish, but proud people act foolishly. Let's read the scriptures here, verses 16 through 19 of 2 Corinthians 11. I repeat, Paul says, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. Now here comes the sarcastic statement. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. That's kind of fun for me, I have to tell you. This is somebody who's sort of an aficionado of it. Uh, I I see what he's saying. The Greek word Paul uses for foolishness is the Greek word aphrosine. It communicates insanity as opposed to the Greek word moria, which communicates stupidity. And this is intentional. Paul is saying that the Corinthians, in the parlance of our time are acting crazy. They must be crazy to not see what was up. Now, if you can recall, if you've listened to past sermons in this series or you listened to even last week's message, we have some people that are in their church that are exalting themselves to this power position of leadership. They're demonstrating an amazing amount of arrogance and pride and demandingness. They're authoritarian and and abusive in some ways. And Paul has said to these folks, you should have never let them in the door. Paul wasn't saying in his particular case he was acting or he was going to be foolish and that that, you know, that this in itself was okay. He was adopting the rhetorical tool of his, the rhetorical reasoning of these critics. And he said, well, let's, let's start boasting about things that we should do. Both the Corinthians and their false teachers were thinking and acting foolishly, and they didn't even understand how. The Corinthians were unwise in welcoming them in the first place. They they should have known, according to Paul. They were crazy, if you will, for not knowing that when the leaders boasted about how powerful and great they were, that they were espousing anti-Christian behavior and anti-Christian doctrine. So you should have known right away. This, is, this pride, this arrogance is the antithesis of what Jesus has said. Right away you should have known. What's wrong with y'all? Well, last week we talked about a bunch of people who allowed themselves to be led to their death in a cult. I, on a weekly basis, will turn on televangelists, and I'm surprised that more people don't recognize what seems fairly evident to me, and maybe that's because I think too much of myself, but I was watching with my wife one week. I, I won't use the guy's name because I don't think that would be appropriate, but this televangelist who stood in front of his massive congregation and said, you need to pray for me. I face struggles and challenges on a weekly basis that would make some of you crushed. And it was like, wow, you're, you think quite a bit of yourself there, chief, don't you? Your, your battles are huge. Well, why is us peons? Well... We're just going to have to learn to pray for you. And this really was the bravado. And, and man, it's pretty common if you'll turn on one of these Christian TV networks. The bravado of the Christian leader. I'm surprised that more of us don't go, and prayerfully in this generation, people will go, something funky about that, I'm not going there. That would be a good thing. In, in my generation, people just wanted so badly to believe that the Spirit of God was moving there that somebody could actually have ascended to this power position 
and be this flawless example of what it means to walk out the Christian faith in power and glory. Then we found out when Jimmy Swaggart got caught and when Jim Baker got caught and when every other televangelist under the sun over the past 20 years has been caught that they're just broken folks just like us. You contrast that attitude which prevailed in Corinth. We are superior to you. We're above you. You should listen to us. We're powerful speakers. We're gifted of the Holy Ghost. And now all of a sudden everybody's going, oh, we can't contradict them. Don't touch God's anointed, Brooks. That's one thing you and I are going to get straight right here and now. You're the associate pastor. Remember that. This is the, th- the idea. It's like, oh, I'm untouchable. Well, this is what was going on. You contrast that attitude with Paul's willingness, which he does throughout this book of 2 Corinthians, but also will continue to do so, a willingness to boast about his weaknesses. A characteristic of Christian leaders is that they humbly recognize that they're mere human beings. Gospel-grounded leaders realize they're jars of clay out of which the life of Christ is poured out graciously. And that they're as prone to weakness and foolishness as the next person. The evidence of spiritual maturity isn't the absence of weakness, but a complete and total lack of confidence in one's strength. Let me say that again. If you're saying, I feel like a really spiritually mature person, then I would say one characteristic in your life is going to be you have zero confidence in your natural capacities to do anything. That you are fueled by the grace of God from first breath of the day to the last time you lay your head on the pillow. St. Augustine said, the sufficiency of my merit is to know that my merit is not sufficient. For our relationships with God to evidence the power of His Spirit, there must first be the presence of humility. And humility, incidentally, is the key to effective outreach to people in our culture today who are skeptical about Christianity. If we put up a phony front of superior godliness as opposed to a refreshing, self-deprecating honesty about our brokenness, What happens when we put our best foot forward and hide where we're struggling or hide where we're weak is that we unintentionally communicate to others that the reason we are excited about our faith or the reason we are at peace with God is because of our own goodness. By contrast, when we make ourselves look bad by being honest about what's really going on in our lives, it forces people to ask a critical question. Which is, is, if you struggle like I struggle, or you are as naturally flawed as I am, then tell me this. How are you at peace with God? See, this is like an open door to say, because Jesus has made me acceptable to the Father. He's not only forgiven me and then told me, okay, don't make any more mistakes, mistakes or we're going to have a problem. He said, I forgive you, and I'm going to credit to you my holiness so that you can stand at peace with me today. And then from this point on, all we just got to do is be honest. We look, it, it, the gospel gives us this freedom to look down into the abyss of our poor motives and our, and our poor condition and say, you know what? Jesus has forgiven me. And I can be honest and, and, and actually work through this. We may look foolish to the world around us, but then they look at the fruit of life the fruit of a Christian life, and give glory to Jesus. This is the point that Paul's trying to make. Meek people may look foolish, but proud people just act foolishly. 
They're, they're saying, I, and, and the definition of foolish action is to almost delude yourself, you know, to, to, to kid everybody that you got it together when you really don't. Another foolishness of the Corinthians is their apparent failure to seek counsel before arriving at these convictions. They'd concluded that these new leaders were of God based supposedly on superior giftedness alone. But based on those priorities, imagine who we'd have to say was right. If uh, the size of a movement or the, the strength and charisma of a particular leader means that they're truthful, then, of course, Islam should be correct because of it's growing faster numerically according to statistics than any other religion in the world. Uh, Mormonism, as a, as a subset cult of Christianity, is fast growing. You could say, well, why? Well, I, I don't know, but I can tell you that size has nothing to do with accuracy. In fact, some of the places where the church has done uh, really, really well historically, they, they've actually decreased in size. And what I mean by that is, is that they've been most honest and most truthful and experienced persecution. And for decades, of course, when I was younger, China was being persecuted. And now the Chinese church is growing faster than you can fathom. So for years they were oppressed and suppressed and now they're thriving. You see, for years they were probably the healthiest church on the planet, most vibrant and connected to God. So we don't look and make assessments of whether or not something is good based merely on whether or not something is large or its leaders are charismatic. Yet today's believers so often are swayed by oratory and bravado instead of critically and wisely assessing what they hear. It was Solomon who wrote, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. With counsel, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Uh, every Thursday on Facebook, if you didn't know, is Throwback Thursday. And uh, I do my best to try to avoid putting anything about myself up there, but I can't keep friends uh, from my childhood from doing so. And so, not recently, they put this picture up online. I don't know. Now, what you have to understand is that that guy with a lot of hair, the really good-looking one in the middle, that would be your pastor at age 18. And um, the shirts we are wearing say, Al's our pal. And I have to tell you the story because it's significant as far as my foolishness is concerned. Anyway, as a junior in high school, we started uh, to impress the girls on the volleyball team, getting people to show up at the volleyball games, and we served as the volleyball cheerleaders. Now, uh, we did this, and I tell you, only because we thought the girls on the team were really cute and we wanted to come alongside of them. So this made good sense. And so we uh, began to attract crowds to girls' volleyball in, in record numbers, and so we were loved by all. Uh, that junior year, the principal's son uh, was on the volleyball squad, and everything was right with the world. The following year, his son graduated. The principal, whose name was Al, began to pick at us about what we were saying and what we were doing. And he began to meddle, and we didn't like it very much, and it became one of those standoffs where he called us into the office and tried to assert his authority. And so none of us liked him. 
And so we decided, in response to his rebuke, we were going to start a campaign called Al is Our Principal. And so, <laughs> and so we sarcastically got these shirts that said, Al's Our Pal on them. And, and then we wore those as our volleyball cheerleader uniforms. Now, it was fun for us. Um, but I can tell you this much, uh, our parents wondered aloud, as did other uh, administrators, if this were wise. And I want you to know, it wasn't. Um, we created a pretty tense environment with the administration at our school, all because we thought we were being funny and thought we were being cute. And really what we were doing was foolishly following what we thought was right. In retrospect, we did say a lot of things that were inappropriate, and we did do a lot of things that were inappropriate, and we were just smart aleck kids. But see, wisdom is what's supposed to come with age, and hopefully in my case it is. And, I, and I'll tell you that what you see in Paul's case is a use of sarcasm to say to his Corinthians brothers and sisters with whom he was you know, at his, sort of at his wit's end, listen, gang, you're moving about this really foolishly. And while I may look foolish to you because I'm meek, proud people, you all, and these guys who you are following are just acting foolishly. So he makes another, uh, a second sarcastic point in our passage today. Sarcastic point one was just that. Meek people look, may look foolish, but proud people act foolishly. Sarcastic point number two for Paul is proud people are self-serving, but meek people serve selflessly. Let's read the passage again from chapter 11, verses 20 and 21. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. Now, here's the sarcastic part. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool I also dare to boast of that. We're going to launch off verse 21 next week, but right now it's imperative to look at what this word foolishness was operating as in this Corinthian culture. The, the concept of foolishness is not new to Paul and the Corinthians. Uh, Paul had arrived at a point where he was using sarcasm to make his point because they were foolish believers. In 1 Corinthians, they were the foolish believers who put up with drunkenness during communion. In 1 Corinthians, they were the foolish believers who looked the other way when somebody who was apparently a prominent member of their church was having an affair with his, his stepmother. Uh, he addressed them previously. On a completely different note, Paul had addressed how he had been viewed as foolish and not very powerful. And the first time he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 2, he said to them, I did not come to you. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of God, wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul had told them up front, the world is going to think our message is foolish. A guy rose from the dead. You're going to base your whole life on the idea that a human being came back to life. Paul was mocked in some corners of Greece for being so simplistic. And, and, and he even says to the Corinthians in the first chapter of the first letter to them, you know, Jews think this is nuts. And, and, and of course, the, the Greeks think we're just fools. 
the simplicity of this message that we're broken and sinful, we need forgiveness, and Jesus died in our place is just way too basic. We cannot accept that because it's just beneath us to embrace this type of theology. And yet here we are, years later, new set of critics come in, and sadly some of the Corinthians still referring to Paul not only as a weak speaker, but as weak when he was in person. Look back in chapter 10. Not impressive, they say, in person. Well, Paul throws this sarcastically back at them and informs them that, yes, he's too weak to make such a display of despicable, overbearing authoritarianism as is displayed by the false apostles. Say, yeah, thank the Lord I was too weak. I didn't abuse you in any way. It's too weak for that. Goodness gracious, I'm glad I was that weak. As I hinted at last week, uh, the ability to put the needs of others is uh, put the needs of others first in front of your own is an indication um, uh, of your growth as a believer. If you can do that, Paul's critics missed what Saint Augustine said. Of course, they were predated Augustine, so it made sense that they didn't hear what he said. But this is what Augustine said: If you plan to build a tall house of virtues, you must first lay deep the foundations of humility. See, our broken condition causes us to put our needs first. We are most important. Left to our own selves, we will put ourselves first and everybody else second. Paul says something really interesting in this passage that I don't want to step away from too quickly. In, in verse 20, he says a list, he states a list of things that are uh, ways that these teachers have abused the Corinthians. And in that list, it includes, as I read from verse 20, that they make slaves of you or devour you or take advantage of you, even saying they strike you in the face. Now, some commentators think this is hyperbole, that this didn't actually take place, that he's trying to draw them to the logical conclusion. Are you going to follow these people all the way until they start hitting you? I mean, how much abuse are you going to take from these folks? Some actually think that this actually took place, that... The, these leaders might have actually gotten involved in physically harming them if they were daring to disobey them. Either way, what I found interesting was in the middle of this abuse, Paul says that equally bad is this idea that people would put on airs. Now, if you don't know what putting on airs means, it, it simply means that you or I would act better than we really are, or pretend to be good or to be superior to others while knowing we aren't. You see, the heart's cry for you and me is that our Father would say, well done. And when we push ourselves to the front, when we make others do so that we can be served, it shows that deep down inside, there's something wrong that we're not seeking God. We're not letting God fill that space in our heart. Paul is saying it's not just bad, but it's evil to act better than one really is. It is the height of self-exaltation, and at its heart, it is a desire to rob God of the glory that he alone is due for creating us and for gifting us and protecting us and providing for us. He wrote to the Philippians, Paul did, and he said this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on our cross. Uh, as is our weekly custom at PRISM, we have to ask ourselves where the gospel rubber hits the road. In other words, what is driving our self-exaltation? What is it that is causing you and I to say, I need, to, I need others to affirm me. I need others to hear me. I need to brag or exaggerate or I need to always be pushing myself to the front of the proverbial line. We fight and we scheme to get our way and promote our self-interest. The Christian is called to a deep reality. The gospel frees us to look at this. The gospel frees us to examine at a deep level why we're really substituting our soul's cry for God, which is really what this is. The heart's cry is to hear God say, well done, you are my child, I love you, you're important to me. That's what we long to hear. We long to hear that we are significant. And oftentimes what we'll do instead is create our own selfish devices that force people to honor us, and it ends up taking the place of God in our lives. In the broken world in which we live, we've been separated from God's affirming love for us in this minute-by-minute existence. We're prone to wander towards other things which don't have the capacity to satisfy our soul's need, so we fight and scheme to get our way. This reality we're called to is one where Jesus' life is being infused into us daily through the power of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Our daily dependence on the bread of life for our survival is what helps us to, what Paul says to the Philippians, have this mind amongst yourselves, that you think less of yourself than others, that you consider others more important. It's the daily presence of Christ that reminds us of this. This is why we're called, when we're called to repent, we're not just we're called to stop behaving certain ways, we're, we're called to engage with Jesus because it's in the presence of Jesus where we begin to discover more and more of where his ministry has to take place in our hearts, where greater healing has to take place. These times when we're selfish, these times when we're self-exalting, these times when, as proud people, we are self-serving, these need to be times of great indicators for us. They need to be indications. Something's, something's amiss. My heart's longing for something. That's why I'm doing this. This past week, I received a notice from California American Water which is never a good thing. Uh, we're in the midst of a drought, and there are specific rules about watering your lawn, uh, when you can, how much you can. And I think for the most part, I felt like I've been following these rules pretty carefully, but the good people of California American Water, sarcasm laid on thick, fired off this unbelievably condescending letter, <laughs> which reads, we see that you're using this much water. People with your size home and lot use a lot less. And I'm thinking to myself, nothing makes you feel 
like less of an adult than when the people of the state of California send you condescending letters treating you like a child. I, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, okay, you know, I, I, my sarcasm alert is going off like crazy now because I'm thinking, you know, I really don't need you to talk to me like I'm a child. Thank you very much. But apparently our family has been abusing the use of water at this really radical rate. And, and, and so I, I'll take their notice because I don't want to pay a lot of money anyway for the extra water we've been using. And I'll consider the reality that I needed to be reminded of my selfishness. I say, okay, I don't like hearing it, but you know, they send you these notices to let you know not only are they going to bill you a lot of money, but you're kind of being a selfish guy. Now, as believers, you and I are called to this encounter with God. It's a relationship. We experience him through the word and through prayer and fellowship and sacrament and worshiping together on Sundays. All of these are the means of grace that God has given to, to gently remind you and I when things are, are off in our lives, when we're being selfish, when we're being unkind, when his glory is not our greatest gain. All these things happen as you and I engage with Jesus. He is not saying to you, and I want you as best you can to hear this today. He is not saying, behave. I'm tired of your mess. He's saying, come be close to me. Walk with me. And when you need to be reminded of your selfishness, I'll let you know. That's what he's saying. He'll want you to change. But all of that change takes place in the context of actual fellowship and enjoyment and engagement with Jesus. And when we start to see our selfish meter go crazy, the Spirit of God reminds us and calls us to look more to Him for our daily need of love and assurance than we would to anything else. And for the record, my wife and daughter take really long showers. (laughs) Let us pray. Father, we're grateful that you love us, and uh, we're grateful that there's more grace to be accessed than we can even conceive of. You, Jesus, uh, sometimes speak into our lives with thunder and sometimes you speak into our lives with whispers. We recognize that the scriptures sometimes speak with an edge and sometimes it's just so soft and, and it's like falling into a pillow. And today, perhaps this word is a little edgier. But I pray that we wouldn't, in our hearts, resist it nonetheless. You are calling us to be people who serve selflessly. And you're calling us to people who act wisely. And all of that takes place as we fellowship with you. So I would pray that through our communion today, through our fellowship with each other, that you would draw us into more intimate friendship with you. And that the result of it would be your glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray.